This episode is sponsored by Herbert Wells Time Machine Superstore. Now you too can live for hundreds of years. Just buy a time machine and travel to the time before the flood. Order now by calling 1-800-171-1. Whoa, hey, okay, that's enough of that. Hey everybody, my name is Ray Burns and I want to equip Christians to think biblically about every area of life so that they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. Before we begin, I want to thank my supporters on Patreon who support this podcast every month and make sure that I don't need to rely on ads to to uh, do what I'm doing here. So if you'd like to join them in supporting Onward in the Faith every month, you can check the link down in the show notes or just stick around to the end of the episode. And in this episode, we are going to be talking about why lifespans seem to shorten after the flood, why it seems that nobody is living past 120 years after the events of Genesis 6. Now, this is something that fascinates a lot of people when they run into it. Whenever you're reading through the early chapters of Genesis, it's really hard to ignore that people needed a lot of birthday candles as they advanced in life. You've got the oldest recorded human being being Methuselah who lived to 969 years. And he wasn't necessarily just a freak accident. There are people who lived for centuries in in the early chapters of Genesis. And then when we read those things, we, you know, maybe raise an eyebrow. We think, huh, that's weird. I wonder what happened. But we don't really understand or know why it is that people went from living for 600 years to be to die at a young age to being lucky to hit triple digits today. And as you continue reading in Genesis, and if you start noting the ages that God inspires Moses to record, you start realizing that it seems like after the flood, ages started dropping really sharply. It's not just that people went from living 600 years to 500 years, but literally from 600 years to maybe 100 or getting close to 200 if they got really old. It's a noticeable drop and while God's word, I don't believe, offers us specifics as to why, I think that over the years, people have come up with some theories and some ideas, some of which make a lot of sense and work really well, and some that seem to sound good, they seem to sound right, but on closer examination, really do nothing to explain this sudden decrease in life expectancy. And so... What we're going to do in this episode is really just look at some of the weaker theories and some of the stronger theories and see if maybe we can get just a little bit of a better idea as to why people live so much shorter after the flood. Now, before we can do that, we need to talk about something called correlation versus causation. And the reason that we need to talk about this is that when I was studying for my original article about this, I would read a lot of theories and and read and, you know, listen to talks about it and things like that. And one thread or one common thing I noticed about people who were offering some some theories that maybe weren't as good is that they misunderstood this idea of correlation versus causation. So what these words are. Correlation is, means to correlate, or when things are happening at the same time. Whereas causation is maybe a little more obvious. It is when one thing is causing another. So to give a, a silly example of this, think about the kind of stereotypical sports fans who they'll be watching uh, the, the Dallas Cowboys play, and they will have a a routine or a ritual that they'll perform where in the past when they've worn a certain jersey or they've worn a certain hat or they've turned the TV in a certain way it seems like their sports team performs better and so because of that they will wear the same jersey or do the same things in order to increase the chances that the Dallas Cowboys will, will perform better 
That is a correlation because obviously you wearing a jersey in your living room or even at the the football stadium is not going to have any impact whatsoever on how a group of, of individuals is performing in a sport. But there, you are noticing a correlation where you are saying, I did this and this happened, so they must be connected. Another example of correlation that uh, I read that I thought was a really interesting example of it is um, a man was sharing about his wife who swore that she was allergic to something called MSG, which if you don't know, it's a, a flavor additive that is often featured in Chinese food. And it's kind of a hot button topic for some people because they swear that MSG is this you know horrible health thing. And some people say that it's nothing at all. It's just fine. Um, and so, but this man's wife though, without any testing, she was starting to just, she was, um, confident that she was allergic to MSG because every time she ate Chinese food, she felt sick to her stomach. And so she was just certain without being tested, without any, um, experiment or anything like that. She concluded that when she ate Chinese food, she felt sick. She knows from the news or maybe or from friends or whatever, that Chinese food has MSG in it. And people talk about how MSG is harmful and unhealthy. So therefore, she had to be allergic to MSG. So you hear what's going on here. She has one experience. She tries to connect it to something that seems to be present every single time and makes a conclusion on it. Chinese food has MSG. I get sick when I eat Chinese food. Therefore, I'm allergic to MSG. Now, as this guy shares, um, his wife was a little astonished because as she started doing some research, she started seeing that other foods that she eats just fine also has MSG in it, and yet she never feels sick. And they discovered that, well, the wife has a very mild peanut allergy, and so when she would eat Chinese food, it would be cooked at the very least around peanuts, and so she would just be having an allergic reaction to the traces of peanut in the in the food. And so this is where correlation versus causation comes into play. She was correlating. She was connecting the dots saying, here are two things that are present at the same time. They must be causing each other, but they weren't because the true cause was when I eat food tainted by peanuts, my alert, I have a slight allergic reaction to it and feel sick. Now on its own that, I mean, that kind of thing deserves its own podcast episode simply because correlation versus causation comes up a lot in the Christian life because people think that, oh, I, I sinned. I got angry with my kids and I lost my job. God must be punishing me. Or I, you know, I've not been reading my Bible and my, my parent died. God must be punishing me for not reading my Bible. That is a correlation. You are seeing something that you feel guilty about or something that you are afraid of and then something negative happens, and so you are trying to connect the dots between those. So again, that that is a principle. You know, you can stop the, the episode here, and I'm sure you'll have learned something. But the reason I'm talking about this is that when I was studying and trying to understand the different perspectives for why lifespans seem to shorten after the flood, a lot of people would be falling victim to this fallacy of taking two related pieces of data and trying to say, aha, these are clearly connected. One is causing the other. This is present in the narrative or this is implied in the narrative. People start dying sooner. Therefore, this is what's causing that death. And so, again, like I said, understanding that we're going to be better able to understand why the next uh, three things or the first three things we're going to talk about, which are what, why, why I don't believe lifespan shortened, why I believe that is. So, uh, like I said, so the next are the first three or the three reasons that are popular or that are commonly stated, but I really don't believe offer at any kind of thorough explanation at all for why lifespan shortened. Uh, the first one, and this is hands down probably the most popular theory. This is the one I grew up believing. This is the one I hear repeated often today. Uh, if you talk to people, they would probably offer this as the evidence. And that is simply that God decreed, God set a limit to 
human life at 120 years. And they even have a Bible verse that seems to support this. And that is in Genesis 6, 3. It says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now, as we're reading that today, that really makes a lot of sense because human beings, as we look around today, we don't, we don't live past 120 years. And so when we look at the data available today and we see this matching thing where God seems to limit man's days to 120 years, we say, ah, clearly that's what it is. God has just set a hard limit that no one is allowed to live past 120 years. However, this falls apart in two different ways. First of all, and this really just blows it out of the water, people did live more than 120 years after God said this. Now, we will ignore people who were alive when God said this. So Noah and his family, they all, as far as we know, lived past 120 years. But we will just ignore that. And we will look at the lifespans of people who came after Noah, people who were born after the flood, people who were born after God, seemingly set a hard cap on the human lifespan. Uh, the easiest example, I think, is Abraham. Everybody knows Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, and he also had many birthdays. If you look at Genesis 25, verses 7 and 8, it says, These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. So, Abraham was born after God said this thing before the flood and yet abraham was born and and he he exceeded that lifespan so immediately one of two things is happening either god is a liar and didn't or couldn't limit man because maybe abraham was just such a healthy eater or something that he just exceeded what god had said or that's not what god meant and i'm going to say that it's the second one, because if you look at the recorded lifespans in the Bible, the first instance we have, maybe this wasn't the first person, but the first instance we have in the Bible of someone living less than 120 years wasn't until Joseph, and he died at 110 years. But everyone before Joseph that's recorded in the Bible from after the flood until until his recorded death, everyone lived past 120 years. So clearly, we have, we have no choice but to conclude that even though it seems to answer why people don't live past 120 years today, that's not sufficient. That is the issue of correlation. We are seeing, oh, God said 120 years, we don't live past 120 years today. Surely those are related, but they're not. They're just... They are independent points that we are trying to make connections to. Instead, what we are actually seeing here is that God wasn't making a, a broad proclamation about the human lifespan that he wouldn't enforce for several centuries. Instead, he's giving a deadline about what he's going to do to the earth. So if we look at this in its fuller context, so this is going to be Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to start at verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, and remember, then is one of those statements that says because of what just happened, here is what came next. So men began to multiply, the um, daughters of men had children with the sons of God. We're not going to get into what that means, but because of what was happening, God says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. Strive meaning to fight against, to, to try to bring to conviction at, through the Holy Spirit. Because he, is, because he also is flesh, nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. So God is setting a deadline here. He is saying, because of what's happening, I'm not going to keep just fighting with people and trying to bring them to repentance. Instead, I'm going to, in 120 years, I'm going to do something. 
And then it goes on and it further clarifies the other issues or the other reasons that God is going to, as we know, destroy the earth in a flood. It says, verse 4, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Well, doesn't that sound familiar? The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I made them. And so here God's, God is, is saying, basically, I'm going to set their, their limit or their time left on this earth, these particular people, to 120 years. God is not making a broad proclamation. He is not saying how he is rewiring genetics. What he's simply saying is, I am looking at the land. I am seeing the, the wickedness of the people around me or of the, of the people that I've created. And I am going to blot them out. In 120 years, I'm going to remove them from the face of the earth. I'm going to destroy absolutely everything. Then verse 8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so here is really just the flood narrative that a lot of us are familiar with. God sees the wickedness of the earth. He says, in 120 years, I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to wipe out everything except for Noah and his family. And then God calls on Noah to build this ark. And he spends this 120 years building this ark. And so we see that even though 120 seems to line up and seems to answer why people die younger today than they did back in the days of Methuselah and even Noah, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work with the narrative. It doesn't work with the evidence that we see after the flood. So even though those two things seem to be correlated, the flood or or what God said there is not causing people to die sooner. Instead, that 120 years was a time limit. It was a clock that he was setting for the people who were alive when he said it until he would destroy the earth in a flood, only saving Noah and his family and the animals. Now, the second thing that does not explain why people lived longer back then is the food and natural living. Now, I don't know how long this theory has been around, but I can only imagine that it has grown in popularity as food and natural living has kind of resurfaced into the public awareness. And the unfortunate thing here is that while you know better eating and things are good, a lot of this is really just marketing. And there's even books out there about the Genesis diet where they will say, hey, you see how long people lived back in the days of Genesis? Well, look at what they did and didn't eat, and this will explain it. Now, one thing of particular note that this idea or these, these diet fads will push is that in Genesis 9-3, this is obviously after the flood when uh, Noah and his family debark from the ark, it says, uh, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. So the argument here is that eating meat is actually what shortens our lifespans. And so if you want to live longer and if you want to add years to your life, then you need to eat in the same way that Methuselah did or Noah did before God said he could eat meat. And again, eating healthy is an important thing. No doubt about it. It is caring for the body that God has given us. It allows us to be more effective for ministry by living longer and not having a variety of health complications. But there is... In reality, there is nothing that you can actually do to add to your life. As we'll see, our bodies are are basically hard-coded to self-destruct in about 100 years. And so nothing you can do can add to that. You can delay your body's full-blown breakdown that leads to death. But you cannot add a single second to your life. No amount of healthy eating or exercise or anything is going to add time to you because the only thing that healthy eating is, the only thing that medicine is, the only thing that any health pursuit is, is it is delaying the inevitable. 
It is removing things that will end our lives sooner, but it does absolutely nothing to add to it. So it does not matter. We could we could remake the world or you could go somewhere in the world that has not been touched by any pollution or any unhealthiness or anything like that. You could go to a part of the world that is completely similar to what the world was like before the flood, in, in theory, if you could do that. And it would not matter how well you ate. If it was you who was there, if it was your body as it currently is that was there, nothing you can do is going to add to your life. The only thing you can do is prevent dying a little bit sooner. So this idea that, oh, just eating like they did and living like they did with all natural and bare feet and stuff like that, you know, if, if that's what you want to do with your life, that is fine. But the Bible does not support having to live that way. And it especially does not support the idea that this is some kind of health secret that's been locked away in the Bible and not seen until some author decided to make some money off of it. It just doesn't work. Now, the third theory and another that is uh, one of the more popular ones is the idea of a water canopy. Now, I was hesitant when I wrote this and I'm hesitant as I'm recording this to immediately dismiss this. And I think that's for one of two reasons, or maybe both. Uh, the first is that I grew up with the water canopy. This is this was an answer I was given and explained and had an argument presented to me. And I thought, okay, that makes sense. Sure. Water canopy. That explains everything. The second reason is that um, I don't... I have not studied the conflicting and or the pros and cons of the water canopy enough to conclusively say this doesn't work but i will say that the evidence i have seen against it far outweighs the evidence that people present for it and so the water canopy is a thing that i will not argue for and even more modern uh, christian scientists are just they're they're losing favor they're kind of abandoning the theory because they're seeing some just the bigger issues with it but to explain what it is though the water canopy theory goes something like this so in genesis 1 verses 6 and 7 it says then god said let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters god made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse and it was so so Basically, what God does here is he makes the world and he makes a gap between two waters. Now, the argument here is that God basically separates the, the waters below or the oceans from the waters above, which is this canopy or this bubble of water. Now, maybe a way to, th to try to picture this is think about those, you know, like a big bubble that you can blow with like a kid's bubble wand. Picture something like that with the earth inside of it. And it's just this thick layer of essentially water that is surrounding the earth as well as our own atmosphere. Now, the purpose of this barrier is that it would keep the world essentially perpetually watered, almost like a greenhouse. So it wouldn't rain on the earth because it's very, very likely that no one before the flood had ever seen rain. But instead, it created this kind of wet atmosphere to where plants were always supplied with water and, and things like that. And so the earth was able to thrive, but not through rain and drought, but instead just a constant uh, level of humidity, I guess, if you will. Now, as far as how that impacts longevity, there's two theories associated with that. First of all, there's the theory that um, the water canopy protected us from solar radiation. Uh, as science has grown and we've better understood the effects of things, we see that solar radiation is a thing that can damage our cells. And so this water canopy may have protected us from these harmful rays. Therefore, our genes weren't and cells weren't breaking down and we were able to live longer. Uh, theory number two is that because the water canopy created a basically an impenetrable layer, uh, we had increased levels of oxygen that were energizing our cells and allowing us to live longer. So I want to tackle these in reverse order, starting with the idea of increased oxygen, because this one is, I think, just fairly quick that we can dismiss. Um, lots of oxygen is actually bad. 
I don't think we realize that, and this was a shock to me years ago when I learned about this, because you would think, oh, if I had, you know, our, our bodies need oxygen. If we have zero oxygen, we die. Therefore, if we got more oxygen, that would be even better for us. But um, there's actually a thing called oxygen toxicity, where if we get too much oxygen, or if we live in high levels of oxygen, it actually poisons our cells. And so that's why in hospitals and things like that, you only put someone on pure oxygen if there is really no other choice. It's not this magical cure-all where if anyone is sick, you just give them more oxygen to energize their cells. It's ultimately a last-ditch effort because the effects of getting too much oxygen, especially for an entire lifetime, for centuries, would actually kill you faster. So... Be careful about taking those big breaths. You don't want to get too much oxygen, I guess. Uh, but uh, answering the second one, the the theory of solar radiation, that seems more likely, right? It makes sense. You know, if it's blocking us from bad stuff, then we're, we're going to be living longer because we're not having bad stuff kill us. Now, this, though, has one big issue, and that is that if it were true, then the lifespans that we looked at for the 120 years should actually have been a lot different. So, number one, Noah and his family should have basically been stricken by cancer and died fairly shortly after getting off the ark. Because if they went from never having experienced solar radiation to suddenly being blasted by it, then their bodies would have reacted very harshly against it. Similarly, children born after that should have basically had a shorter lifespan because they would have been born into solar radiation and grown up into solar radiation. And so the only the only way to support this is to insist that, well, maybe solar radiation slowly mutated genes throughout these generations, but ultimately with the science that seems to be available to us, what we understand about solar radiation doesn't seem to match the lifespans that we see, both for the people who debarked and got off the ark, as well as uh, how lifespans were affected afterwards. So, as I said, this theory is just losing popularity. So, if you're sitting here and you're wondering, okay, so what is the deal in Genesis 1 with this waters that separates waters and there is a, because it talks about there's an expanse in the middle of the waters, and we understand that to be our, our earth space. In other words, from the, from the ground to the atmosphere, we assume that that is the expanse that it's talking about when it says that there's an expanse in the middle of these waters. However, if we're going to be consistent with that interpretation, then we run into a lot more scientific issues because just a few verses later in Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, God does something else in this expanse that we assume is our atmosphere. It says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. So in other words, if we're going to say that the expanse is our atmosphere, then when God puts the sun and the moon and the stars in the expanse, that must mean that the sun, moon, and stars are actually within our atmosphere. They're not out in outer space. They are beneath where the water canopy would have been. And so... Obviously, that is completely ridiculous. That that makes absolutely no sense with what we understand about anything of reality. So clearly, when God's talking about making an expanse between the waters, he's not talking about the expanse as just our narrow atmosphere. Because he also, in the in this expanse, he hangs the sun, moon, and stars. So again, this water canopy thing, it is the most scientific attempt at explaining it but as we see there's just a few too many holes to really hold much water so having looked at the three options that don't seem likely let's now look at three options that do seem likely and 
Before we get into this, I do want to say this is a little more scientific nerdy than you may be accustomed to on Onward in the Faith. I also want to say that I am not a scientist. This is my explaining the results of my studying. So if you are out there and you are more understanding of things like genetics and you hear me get some stuff wrong, forgive me. I will have a link down in the show notes that better explains this. But for people who would like to benefit from my hours of research and trying to understand this better, this is going to be for you. So uh, the first option is a fairly simple one and I think an interesting one. I'm I'm not sure. So this actually, I heard this from John Piper. I'm sure it's not original to him, but I heard it from John Piper. Um, And it's essentially that our shorter lives are, in a bigger sense, God's way of showing the effects of sin on the earth and maybe even showing mercy to us. But overall, it it is the fact that we do and can look back at these longer lifespans and look at ourselves and say, what happened? Maybe one of God's ways of showing us the true effects of sin in our world. And so here is kind of the argument that is made. So in Genesis 47, verse 9, uh, this is Jacob. It says, And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. So in other words, Jacob is looking back and saying, I've lived a scant few 130 years. What I've lived is nothing compared to my ancestors and the lives that they lived. And yet my time on this earth, this brief time has been filled with, as he said, few and evil days. And so Jacob is essentially in this argument saying that, you know, it is God's mercy. It is It is God's goodness in shortening our lives to show us just how bad sin is, just how broken the world is. And Jacob also might be implying that based on how he says few and evil have been his days, that in the 130 years that he's experienced, he might be saying that it's nothing like his his ancestors didn't experience the, the level of evil in, uh, in, in their first 130 years. In other words, Jacob is saying that his days that he's experiencing are arguably worse, arguably filled with more evil than previous generations would have experienced. And so, as I said, this may also be God's mercy on us in that we, we fear death and we will spend all kinds of money and all kinds of time and live with anxiety about wanting to live longer. But really, it may be God's goodness and mercy on us to not allow us to live for centuries at a time. Because you think of the how short lives are today and how filled with brutality and evil and wickedness our lives are. And you think especially of some of the worst people in history. And if they could have looked forward to living for centuries instead of just decades, what might they have done to better protect themselves? What levels of evil would they have gotten into if they had been allowed to live for hundreds of years instead of having to try to leave a legacy in the few short years that they had? So that's theory number one. Uh, It's not the strongest, but I do think that There is something to the fact that God is sovereign and that if our lives are shorter, it's because God has allowed it to be so and God desires it to be so. And if we know that God is good, then there may be a goodness to these shorter lives that we live. But back on the nerd train, um, another option is just the broad reality of diseases and just other brokenness in this world. And so this kind of plays off of the previous one. Um, But instead of it being a mercy of God, it's, again, it's going to be part of God's plan, but it is not just God arbitrarily shortening our lives, but the fact that as time has gone on since the flood, our world has been filled with more disease and more dangers than were originally present. And over time, that just takes its toll on us. Today, especially as we're able to better study disease, we see that diseases don't just kind of hang out and keep doing their thing, but they mutate and new diseases pop up and 
all of this is bent on either infecting us more or killing us faster. And not only that, but the uh, scientific principles of decay and entropy have also broken things down. Entropy being that things are steadily breaking down towards chaos or towards disorder. Uh, essentially, things aren't getting better. Just like your car uh, starts growing rust, it starts breaking down and needing repairs, your car will never on its own be better than the day you got it. Left on its own, everything in the world breaks down and gets worse. And so that's true on a small level, but that's also true on just kind of a universal level that things just get worse. Diseases get worse. Our, our cells get more damaged and things like that. Now to maybe better understand how this might look, we can think of the quality of life in first world countries compared to the quality of life in third world countries. And that in places like, uh, you know, the poorer parts of Africa, your lifespan is very short because things are just generally worse there. There's more disease, there's more suffering, there's less care and things like that. And so that'd be kind of similar in that things immediately after the flood in terms of disease and all that were just generally better. But as time has gone on, we have gotten farther, farther into a more diseased world. And because of that, individuals are falling prey and are much more susceptible to the wide variety of, of issues out there. Now, I will argue with myself against this in that we, we've seen lifespans obviously drop from 600 to about 100. But you would think that as the world gets more broken, lifespans would get worse and worse. And yet we don't really see that. We actually see that the 100 to 120 years of life that we live has about stayed steady for thousands of years. So if you look at Psalm 9010, we have uh, the psalm writer essentially telling us what life was like back then. He says, the years of our lives are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. So whatever it is that made people die sooner seemed to about even out. And the normal life expectancy in the time of the psalm writer, you know, the, the time of David, was about 80 years, which is about right for us today, right? We can potentially live 100 years. But really, realistically, even though we feel like, oh, we are so unhealthy and things are just worse now, we see that lifespans, despite the world, we we feel like the world being so much better and healthier back in those days, they still looked at about 80 years of living. So again, while diet and things like that can help and things like pollution and stuff are not great, really, we see that lifespans, despite how hard we try to protect them or how headlong we run into destroying them, people still lived about 80 years back then, just as they do today. And so to, to just kind of wrap this up, I don't think this is a full blown answer. I think that it helps. And I think there is definitely an argument to be made for the fact that God has designed our bodies to be resilient. And that even though our lifespans have shortened, that doesn't mean that God allows our bodies to just get blinked out and only have our, you know, a week or two of lifespan before we die. Um, but again, I don't think this is fully sufficient. So the final one I want to talk about, and this is going to be harder to get through. Um, if you, if you do better with complex ideas, with reading, uh, as always, my article is linked down in the show notes, as well as within that article, there is a much more thorough explanation of even what I'm going to get into. So I'm going to um, explain the idea of genetics at, at, at a very basic level and then at a bit more of an intermediate level. But if you want to get just a really good explanation from a scientist, again, uh, check the link down in the show notes. So the idea here, and one that I believe has the most merit, is called it is, comes from our genetics, and it has to do with what are called bottlenecks. Now, if you aren't sure what a bottleneck is, uh, think about when you go into a store and they have those little turnstile things. 
So, you know, you go into maybe a Walmart or a hardware store or something like that, and they've got those turnstiles that you have to walk through. Now, it doesn't matter how wide the area behind the turnstile is. It doesn't matter how wide the area in front of the turnstile is. You can only fit a narrow amount of people through those turnstiles, right? One or maybe two, depending on how many turnstiles are there. Um, you know, a doorway is the same thing. You can have a lot of people pushing in, but only one person is going to get through a doorway. And so these bottlenecks in history are times where the human population was so narrowed down that it doesn't matter how much came before them, when only a small amount of people enter into an area or survive a situation, then what is present in them is then what is spread through their future generations. So for example, you know, if, if you come, you know, we all come from just a history of genetics being put into us and we have a whole population on earth. But if the entire earth were wiped out and only eight people survived, then it doesn't really matter what came before. The most important thing is going to be what is the quality of the genes of the people who survived, the people who are going to repopulate the earth. What are their bodies like? What is present in their cells and in their DNA that is going to be passed on to future generations? That is what this bottleneck is. And we see two instances of bottlenecks in the Bible. We see it with Noah very clearly because, again, the entire human population was wiped out except for eight people. And we also see a smaller bottleneck at the Tower of Babel when we have the whole human population is still there that was present, but they broke into smaller groups that spread across the earth and didn't really intermingle much. And so the simple way to understand why bottlenecks matter and why it may explain it is that we'll just take Noah. So if Noah had a flaw in his genetics, what that does is that passes it on to his future children. Now, in some children, that flaw may pop up and they may suffer from a, a problem in how their bodies develop or how their cells replicate and things like that, or they may not experience that. But even if they don't, they are still considered what's called a carrier of that bad gene. And so in the case of Noah, it's not just that there was eight people and Noah himself may have had a bad, bad genes, but it was Noah and his sons and his son's wives. So all the people who took part in repopulating the earth, if Noah had a bad gene, he would have passed it on to his sons. And then his sons, when impregnating their wives, would have passed it on to their children. And on and on this would have gone. Now, without a bottleneck, this doesn't matter too much. You might have a child who is born and they have that active bad gene in them and they have some kind of flaw. Maybe they live shorter, maybe they just have some kind of deformity or some other health problem. But even if that child has a baby, as, as those genes are introduced into a huge population, it kind of gets weeded out, it gets diluted. But in a bottleneck situation, you don't have that option. And so that is kind of the, the basic explanation, is essentially Noah had something bad in his genetic makeup. There was some kind of issue because he lived in a flawed world, and so people were having flaws even then, even though they were living so long. Now, Noah himself didn't seem to suffer from it because he lived a long time, but it is possible that even if it wasn't an active gene in him, as he passed it on to his sons, they could have had active genes and passed those on to their children and so on and so forth. And as this gene gets replaced and replicated, it would have essentially just continually broken down people until the population was big enough to kind of dilute it a little bit more. Now, that might be overwhelming and if it is, I apologize because it's just going to get worse now, but try to stick with me because this stuff is actually pretty interesting. And again, I'm trying to explain this as someone who's not a scientist, so I'm going to try to explain it in a way that is not scientific as much as I can avoid it. But to better understand this, um, we're going to talk about uh, a little more about genetics and aging. 
And when we do this, we're going to better be able to understand why Noah and his sons, and not the flood itself, explain the drop in lifespans. So God designed our bodies with information carriers called genes and DNA. So genes are like building plans for every single part of you. You've got a specific gene that determines your eye color, your hair texture, and I kid you not, even the consistency of your earwax is up to genetics. Because there are people out there who have kind of like runny earwax and people who have really sticky earwax. And neither population realizes that the other one exists. So if you have really sticky earwax because of your genetics, you assume everybody does. But no, that's not a a part of being a human like having legs and, and eyes are. It's part of your genetics. And so your DNA then is basically like a giant book that collects all of these building plans together. And so at conception, a baby can inherit either of its parents' genes. In other words, a baby is made up of the individual building plans of its parents. And so a child can inherit good genes, but it can also inherit a mutated gene. And these mutated genes are more or less like damaged building plans, building plans that work and that your body can can use to build things, but it's not perfect. And so there's some issues when it comes to building you based on those plans. Now, over time, as I said, uh, that mutated gene can get canceled out by future generations as thousands of varieties of genes come together in through reproduction and grow the population. So, as I said, in a in our population today, there are bad genes out there, certainly. I've got some, you've got some, some are active, some are dormant, but those genes aren't going to just completely change everyone out there because your genes are only going to be limited to a, a narrow amount of people. And as good genes are introduced to offspring, they may overwrite our bad ones. And so that is just understanding genetics. Now, as far as the aging process goes, this is actually really fascinating. So God designed our aging process in a very specific way. In other words, he, our bodies work in a very specific way that we may not realize. So most parts of your body are not the parts that you started out with because our, our, our body parts are actually constantly replacing themselves. And modern day scientists estimate that our, the, the materials in our body are no older than 10 years old. So if you are sitting there and you are say 30 years old, the oldest thing in you is probably only about 10 years old meaning that you got it when you were 20 instead of the day you were born so your, your bones your nose your ear um, your organs things like that now obviously they're not it's not some kind of weird black market organ replacement kind of thing but as your cells die they will then replace themselves and so as you have, let's say you have um, a couple cells in your stomach that are starting to age and get weak. Well, what they will do is they will create a copy of themselves that is a better version. And then they will go off and die and be replaced by, by these new copies. And on and on, that's what your body is constantly doing. Now, in theory, people should be able to live forever because of... Our, our, our genetic duplication, right? If, if we have something that is operating at, say, 10% and it re, uh, replaces itself with a copy that is operating at 100%, then as that new copy ages and it makes another, a new 100%, in theory, like I said, we should be able to live forever and never actually age and get old and have our bodies break down. In theory, that makes sense. However, our cells don't always do the best job of creating a perfect copy of themselves. And so as time goes on, when a cell makes a copy of itself that's only operating at 90%, then that new cell will also make a copy of itself that only operates at 90%. Uh, a way to think about it is like make is like a, an old copy machine. So you go to the copy machine with one document. You scan the document and throw it away. Then you scan that new document 
and throw it away. And you keep doing that. Now, in theory, it should always make the exact same document. But if in handling the documents, you accidentally get just a little wrinkle in the corner of the paper, well, that wrinkle is then copied over to the new copy, and every single copy after that is going to have that wrinkle present. Now, in a future copy, let's say you accidentally have a hair, like an eyelash, fall onto the screen. You put your paper over it. When you scan it, that eyelash is now forever a part of that document. And so as you're making future scans, you now have what started as a perfect copy with a with a wrinkle that keeps getting copied and now an eyelash in the middle of the page. And so on and on, these copies, if you keep going, are going to get worse and worse over time because as one flaw is introduced, as one imperfect copy is made, that is now the new model that all future copies are based on. And that is about how our genes work, is when they make a copy, they are supposed to make a perfect replica of what they were like at peak efficiency but if there's one bad copy then it will never get back to 100 percent operation and in extreme cases this is actually where we get cancer from because if a if a gene basically copies itself too badly and has too much of an error then it turns cancerous and that is how cancer grows because they cancer just keeps replicating itself as these bad genes and so from understanding this, both how genes are passed on, especially in bottleneck situations, as well as how aging works, it makes sense how we can run into all kinds of issues, including why we die in the first place, why we age and die, why our organs fail and stuff like that. Uh, really, at a certain point, our bodies just can't create cells that are good enough to keep us alive. Now, we take this and we go back to Noah and how aging worked. The big theory here, this whole bottleneck theory, relies on the fact that Noah had a mutated gene that caused his father to only live 777 years. Shem, Noah's son, lived 600 years. Now, again, normally this wouldn't be too bad. If you had one family with one bad gene, it would be similar to taking a cup of motor oil and pouring it in the ocean. That's not great, and anything that encounters that oil is going to have a bad time. But if I'm pouring something off the coast of California, no one in China is going to suddenly go to the shore and see this, the ocean just completely filled with oil. It's going to dilute, it's going to spread out, and even though it might still be present in some form, overwhelmingly the ocean is so vast that this little cup of motor oil doesn't have a huge impact on the greater whole of this body of water. But again, this bottleneck changes everything because Noah's bad genes, even if they weren't active in Noah, because Noah actually lived 950 years. So his father died arguably young and his son Shem died arguably young at 600 years by comparison to his dad living 350 years longer. That wouldn't be a problem if not for the fact that instead of dumping a cup of motor oil in an ocean, you're dumping a cup of motor oil in a cup of water. And that is going to be very present. It is going to be very dominant. And so if you are, if you take another scoop out of our oil liquid mix and add it to more stuff, there's going to be a lot of oil there and it's going to keep replicating and keep getting passed on and on. And unfortunately, unlike motor oil, you can't dilute it enough that it completely disappears because, you know, genes aren't just a finite thing. They are constantly replicating. And so essentially the entire human race as we see it today is it stems from a, a flawed gene in Noah that ended his father's life and his son's life early. And as it's been passed down, even though it hasn't continued to kill us, it has somehow kept creating bad copies and affecting our aging process so much that when our cells today make copies, thanks to whatever was happening in Noah's genes that he passed on, our cells make perfect copies less often. So 
that was a lot there and i know that but essentially the the important thing to understand is that when we age our cells it's because our cells are not copying themselves properly consider the the xerox copy machine example noah passed on a gene that when our cells copy they are much more likely to fail that's why his son shem died at 600 years because as his genes were copying and replacing themselves they kept doing a worse and worse job until he died hundreds of years earlier than he probably should have and so as more things have gone on that gene has gotten worse and worse and so our bodies today as they are replicating themselves as our as our genes are replacing themselves they are much more likely to fail earlier than they did years ago now this particular explanation doesn't even come close to explaining or exploring the intricacies of how god has really designed us uh, for the sake of this discussion, though, I think that's as deep as I want to get into genetics and aging and things like that, um, because I think that that gives us a good insight into how the flood didn't create shorter lifespans with the whole water canopy. Um, it's not God hard decreeing that we only get to live 120 years, but instead, because God declared the end of humanity through the flood it created a situation a circumstance where because of how god has designed our bodies we live shorter lives because of bad genetics that have been passed on from noah and his sons and have been spread and copied and reproduced and even worsened as they have as future generations have gone on so let's wrap this up with just some final thoughts and what I would say is, is where I fall on all this. So in the end, I don't think there's one answer to it. I don't think there is a straightforward way that we can just package up and write a book about and just call it a day. I do believe, and I, I'm willing to argue lovingly with the fact that it's probably a mix of all three of the answers that I gave. So mutated genes offer a very clear and, and straightforward and logically consistent explanation of why we see ages lowering throughout time until they kind of even out at about 80 years. Again, this all comes down to the fact that there were bad genes that got spread, but then as the human population uh, increased, then those bad genes got filtered out a bit more so that we've kind of evened off to where we are now. I also think that there, it is very difficult to ignore the fact that we live in a broken world, that because of the effects of sin, it's not just that we are made enemies of God, it's not just that our bodies live longer, but that we live in a sin-cursed world. We have disease, we have catastrophes, we have lots of things going on in the world essentially trying to kill us. And that really can't be ignored in the fact that it could be just genetics, but there's also the reality that disease also has a huge impact on populations. And this can be broken all the way down to, like I said, at a disease level, cosmic radiation could play a small part in it. There's all kinds of stuff in this world because of what we talked about with everything breaking down in the world and, and moving towards disorder that there's going to be all kinds of just natural factors that play a part in us not living as long as we used to. But then above all of that, we cannot ignore the reality of God and the fact that he wasn't surprised that people started dying sooner after the flood. He's not surprised that disease is is rampant in the world as it is he the fact that the the family that he saved had a flawed gene wasn't an oversight by god god didn't shut the ark door and start flooding things and realize oh oopsie i i got a bad one in here Uh oh that's gonna turn out poorly no we worship a god who is sovereign he knew exactly what he was doing and so if we are able to look back at men like methuselah and noah living for hundreds of years and we look at us today and say we are lucky to hit a hundred 
There's a reason for that. God has designed that and decreed that for a reason. It could be a mercy to us so that we can't experience more evil. It could be to help us to better understand the reality of sin in the world and that there is something that happened. There is a reason that we went from God's perfect world in Eden to where we are today. I think that all three of these theories work together. God being sovereign, that's unquestionable. You know, we can't budge from that. But within that, how God has used his sovereignty to establish us to how our lives are now, the genetics and and disease does seem to fit within his plan and what we've seen throughout history and what we understand about science today. But to end this, I want to say that this is a a fascinating thought exercise. It's interesting to get answers to curiosities in the Bible like that. How did Methuselah live like that? How did Noah live so long? Why did ages start dropping? The Bible is not a textbook that gives us these answers, but we can apply the science that studies God's creation and apply logic to what we see to get some good answers. But at the end of the day, I don't want us to get so bogged down in this episode with the what ifs and the, ooh, that's cool and that's really interesting or that's so confusing, I don't know. What we do need to realize is that whether we live 80 or 100 years, we are not living forever. Unless the Lord returns and takes us up, we are all going to die. Everyone around us is going to die. We can live a long time and have a really full-feeling life with lots of adventure and successes and things like that, but then we die and our bodies will rot and everything that we've accomplished is going to fade away. And nothing is going to really matter in terms of what we've accomplished from a worldly perspective. Because one day we are going to stand before the judge and give an account to the lives that we've lived. If you're listening to this and you do not know with certainty that God will declare you innocent of all your law-breaking, then the greatest thing that you can do, whether you get to live 100 years, whether you die tomorrow, the greatest thing that you can do is to recognize that you are guilty before God for lying, for stealing, for getting angry. You have broken God's law. But Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross. He took our punishment for us. So for every every necessary judgment against our lying, our lustful thoughts, our actions, our anger, Christ took each of those punishments on himself so that when God looks at us, he can say, my, my law has been satisfied. The punishment has been dealt. I've taken it out on my son. I have no punishment left for you. You are my child. But the only way we get that is by truly trusting that Jesus Christ is the only way to forgiveness, that we can't do anything to earn it on our own, that he alone is the way to salvation. When we realize that, and we realize that all these things that we turn to for happiness, for satisfaction, for our identity, um, all the effort we've made for living longer and trying to be better people and just live for ourselves as long as we possibly can. None of that means anything. We need to turn away from trusting in that for our happiness and satisfaction and even to save us and instead turn only to Jesus Christ, asking him to save you from the penalty and the punishment that you deserve, believing that he will do it if you truly believe that and truly desire it. Now, if you've already done that, then we're not off the hook either because we have a certain amount of time on this earth. If you're in your 30s, you're going to be lucky to have another 40 years. What are you going to do with it? Our time on this earth is limited. We are going to die. Are we investing in ourselves? Are we focusing on living lives to please ourselves? Or are we using this gift that God has given us, these few decades that we may have, to serve him with our lives? So wherever you're at, uh, I want to just end this with Hebrews 9, verses 27 and 28. And just as is 
Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Death is coming, and judgment is coming, and Christ is coming. If you're in Christ, you can look forward to what comes next. It's okay to be uncomfortable with death. Death is weird. Death is an unknown. We don't know what it's going to be like. But because we can look forward to what's coming next, we can live our lives today for Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ. 